Hi guys, welcome back to the Man Cave 4301 podcast. I'm your host, Big Kev. I'd like to take the time to thank each and every one of my listeners that have gone through and followed my Instagram and my Facebook pages. It really means a lot that you find value in the content and that you get what I'm trying to do here. I've also had a few more subscribers to the YouTube channel as well, hitting 550 subs, which is fantastic. If you're looking for another way to support the Man Cave, I encourage you to go over and leave a review on my Facebook page. What this does is it gives me much needed feedback and I can make these episodes better for you in the future. And it's also helping potential guests get a better better idea of what they're in for. My mission is to grow this podcast into something amazing. I have some really awesome people lined up in the future. In fact, this week alone, I had three interviews lined up which is incredible uh, so things are really moving forward i've got a, a little bit of a bank there with my uh, episodes essentially what i want this podcast to be is a place of learning and networking for everyone whether it's veterans finding help um, to identify issues that they might be having or to get work because uh, the people that i'm interviewing have um, employment opportunities every now and then so that's where the networking comes in and it's also for people to encourage others to find their voices after going through something really traumatic like a perfect example is my last podcast with john bailey uh an incredible story and well it is designed so that people can find their voice and speak up about whatever they've gone through so that they 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 don't have to hold it in anymore uh, thank you all for joining me on this journey. Uh, it's it's going to be a long road, but I'm going to put the effort in so that I can build this brand into something incredible. So head over to the Facebook page and drop a review. Now, let's get into the podcast. Today's guest joined the military in 2004, serving in the Airborne Logistics Division, He was attached to 176 Air Dispatch Squadron. He deployed to Timor in 2006, finishing up in 2010, and tried various things, including a little project called the Greater Review. Needless to say, I was a bit starstruck when I rocked up at my kindy and his daughter was enrolled there as well. He's now the founder of Pound for Pound Arm Wrestling on a new mission to bring the sport into a professional light aiming at getting competitors paid accordingly for their sport. It's a pleasure to have him on. Ryan Bowen, welcome to the podcast. Ellis, thanks for having me, man. It's, uh, it's been a bit overdue, I think, hasn't it? It has. And full disclosure, this is take <laughs> two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, you know, I, I, I can understand. Like, I, I come from, I'm sure we'll get there after we talk about <laughs> the military for a while, but I am in the world of podcasting and creating content, and I know the troubles, man. So I... Yep, take two, but hey, let's do it. Let's let's wrap it up real well this time. <laughs> All right. <laughs> let's start it off again with how you got into the military. Yeah, well, um, no surprises to you this time, but I got into the military 2004, January 16, uh, 2004. I remember it was a unique story getting into the military because I always had the ambitions of being in the military. I knew growing up as a kid, uh, the service industries just really resonated with me. So police, fire... Defense Force, they were all things that I just imagined would be options for me. 
And when I got to the end of high school, I was um, I had to make a decision between continuing the pursuit of professional tennis and or getting a job. And I didn't have enough confidence to do the tennis thing, so I joined the military straight out of school. And um, the the story of actually getting into the military out of school was funny. I'd, I'd actually applied to be a aeronautical engineer uh, at the Australian Defence Force Academy, and the the UAI the UAI um, I didn't score high enough on my scores in the, at high school to actually get the green light. And uh, so I'd kind of said to myself, ah, oh, well, I guess I won't be in the Defence Force. And um, I was away on summer holidays. I'd applied to be in university for physiotherapy as well and was expecting that to be the pathway that I'd go down. But uh, on a Thursday afternoon, I got a call from Defence Force Recruiting and they said to me, hey, Ryan, I know you didn't get the score high enough to, to go to ADFA, but... Um, we'd love to offer you a spot at the Royal Military College at Duntroon and yeah, where you get to become a general service officer. And they explained to me all of that, what that would mean. I liked the sound of it. I said, when do we start? And they said, Monday. So I literally had four days um, notice to give to my parents before I was on basic training. So that's commissioned officer, yeah? The, yeah. The, regarded as commissioned. Yep. Okay. So your parents didn't talk you out of doing it? No, my, my parents were pretty good. They they bit their tongue, and uh, I think that my mum was probably deep down struggling with the fact that I gave her four days, and I was on basic training. But um, no, they were they were proud, and they were they were all for it. Uh, I saw it as a, a fantastic opportunity to actually um, to get a lot of life experience. I, I think that it it uh, coming in at age eighteen, comparing it to my friends that were at university uh, who had signed up for sort of three to four year degree. They didn't have time to get a job um, where I graduated from the military college at 19 and I was on $65,000 and uh, and had in front of me amazing opportunities for actual life experience. And, and so I've always been a big fan of the military joining up and I think my parents knew that as well. So yeah, off to basic training we went. Nobody else in your family was military? Um, no, I've actually got a, a number of people in my family um, that were military. My uncle uh, served in the uh, the Air Force. My, my grandfather served um, in... Um, he fought in Kokoda uh, in the Army. And my uncle on the other side fought in the Vietnam War. So uh, there we, had, we had a number number of people. But um, So there was a, the support was definitely there from the family. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Let's go into your boot camp experience, and uh, the, was it Full Metal Jacket? Or it, it was. It was <laughs> like I went. I went down there expecting Full Metal Jacket. That like, I remember. I remember even getting on the bus at Parramatta Defence Force recruiting. Um, getting on the bus, everyone is kind of walking on as a civilian, and they don't really know what they're in for. And the sergeant who picked us up, he was all smiles and everything. <laughs> And the instant that bus went around the corner, <laughs> beasted. Yeah, it, it changed. He was. It was as soon as we were out of sight from our mums and dads who were waving goodbye. Uh, yeah, a different sergeant appeared, and um, he was very intimidating. He was a man named Sergeant Rain. He was a former commander, and now an instructor at the Royal Military College. And he was an intimidating little man. He, I remember one thing that he said to us was that bastardization may not exist anymore in uh, the defense force like it once did but trust me i can make you hurt in ways that you don't know and fire and movement training turned out to be the the mechanism that he used we would just 
for hours on end to do fire and movement, which is painful, throwing yourself on the ground as though someone's shooting at you, essentially. Uh, running, throwing yourself on the ground, running, throwing yourself on the ground, <laughs> over and over and over again, and your elbows, your knees just wrecked. <laughs> so, yeah, that was that was uh, the, the intro to, to basic training with Sergeant Rain on the bus. It was pretty intense. Was there any interesting stories, people that didn't cut it, try to get out in weird ways? Yeah, like not everyone not everyone makes it through basic training. I'd say about uh, 10 to 15% of people didn't. And one, one gentleman in my section, I forget his name, but uh, he wanted to get out. And he went and expressed that to the directing staff, and they weren't interested in it. They said, look, no, it's not that simple. You can't just say, I want to go home. Uh, you got to suck it up. And they, they were trying to get, get him to stay. And he came back to us that night and said, hey, guys, look, I'm going to get out of here, and um, I just want to give you guys a heads up of how I'm going to do it because they're not listening to me. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell them that I will kill myself with my bayonet tonight unless they let me go home. <laughs> and he was joking. He was using that as a bargaining tool. Um, but sure enough, he went home and we all got our bayonets confiscated. <laughs> so uh, we didn't have bayonets for the remainder of the course because of that guy. But as he was leaving, he had a big smile on his face and was very happy. So <laughs> he, he got out of there. Well, so they didn't even give it back one, once he'd left. No, once he'd left, they, 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 yeah, we all had no bayonets. <laughs> <laughs> Which was one less thing to have to clean, at least. So that was that was good. But um, basic training was 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 an eye opener. That's for sure. Lots of lots of uh, just it's a culture shock. Being on basic training is um, not like anything else you've experienced before, and it's not quite as bad as Full Metal Jacket. But um, but I think the directing staff have a lot of fun in breaking down uh, some of the personalities that turn up and uh, realigning them with military values. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's breaking, that, uh, breaking you down to that common denominator and then building you back up again yeah, to, yeah. to, to mould you into what they need you to be. Absolutely. Which is fair enough. Whereabouts do they send you after boot camp? Where do you go? Um, so 12 weeks of basic training and then you complete your, the rest of the 18 months um, at the Royal Military College in Duntroon, which is down in Canberra. Um, and that's where you, you graduate from that with the ability to lead a platoon. Um, so you'll be a platoon commander within your respective uh, corps. And um, you ultimately, uh, that training is all based around infantry. So the, at, the, at the base of, of the Royal Military College is the foundation that we're all soldiers and we all need to be able to revert to infantry tactics if we, if we uh, ever ha- have to. Um, I was allocated to Ordnance Corps. So that is logistics, um, and I ended up specialising in aerial delivery logistics, uh, which was a course uh, over in the United States of America in uh, um, at Fort Lee in Virginia. So that was pretty cool. When you say ordnance delivery, I thought you meant like artillery or something like well, that. Well, yeah, that, I mean that's the the foundation of ordnance corps is exactly that. It's um, it's it's yeah, it's the the rear echelon that provides all of the the fuel the ammunition, um, the food to the people that are fighting. So, um, yeah, that, that like at, at the core of ordnance is, yeah, providing the bombs to the artillery. That's, that's basically what it was. So, um, but obviously it gets a little bit more complex than that. There's a lot more to it uh, with um, the way that warfare occurs today and manoeuvres are far more complex. So aerial delivery uh, was my specialty. And... Um, with the army side of aerial delivery is, I wasn't actually kicking things out of planes. We were preparing um, parachute equipment, 
um, for all of that to happen. And we would then recover all that parachute equipment and get it ready for the next load. And we got to throw, we got to kick people out of planes too, as well. Like I did a lot of, <laughs> I jumped out of a plane a lot of times, jumped out of helicopters, all that sort of stuff. It's good fun. What was your, what was your first experience jumping out of something? Yeah, that yeah, high up. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was static line jumping. So what that means is there's no, you're not. It's not a tandem jump. It is a solo jump. Um, but your parachute is pulled automatically for you. The static line rips it out of the bag. But the the first time, um, though, actually the most interesting jump was actually over there in the USA uh, where I was learning to pack a parachute. And uh, the the very first jump is your own parachute that you packed. Fuck. <laughs> so, Precious. Yeah, on. like the amount of times you want to check that, you're like, I think I got it right. And you're like, oh, man, I hope. Like if, if you didn't get that right, it's your own fault. So packing your own parachute to jump is a weird experience but the actual first time i ever jumped was when i was in australia still on the basic parachute course and you spend like two weeks ground training uh, where you just rehearse and rehearse and rehearse jumping out of a plane that's a meter off the ground um and getting the skills um could they not just give you a platform yeah well well yeah it's a it's a it's a mock airplane okay. um you go through all the drills so when you get up in the air for the first time uh and all of those are all that adrenaline starts kicking in. Your body starts telling you, hey, you're going to die if you jump out of this plane. That's just the, the natural reaction. You can override that with um, with a memory of all of those drills that you just hammered into your, into your mind over the last two weeks. And you just kind of go into that thousand yards there and you just keep on moving forward like you're on a conveyor belt and you just do your drills and the next minute you're out. <laughs> so riding the big slipper dip out the back of the plane. But... Um, I don't know, I'll tell you right now, there were some planes that I was glad to jump out of. Oh, really? I felt safer <laughs> jumping out of than, than, than landing in them. There were some rickety old things. But, uh, yeah, jumping out was an, a very unique experience, and it was something that um, I, I wouldn't call myself an adrenaline seeker, but I kind of am. Like I, I, I kind of like to pretend I'm an adrenaline seeker, and then when I get there, I'm like, oh, I don't really want to do this. <laughs> 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 the roller coaster yeah. looks good. Yeah. I think it, yeah, it's all the bravado of saying I like to jump out of planes and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, yeah. Once, when you get up there, I, I, I'm not at the point yet. I, I did. I only did like probably fifty odd jumps. But only. But fifty, the fifty third jump or whatever it was that I did, my guts were still churning as I was wow. about to jump. Yeah. Wow, you never sort of really got used to it. Nah. But you see people and they're definitely used to it. They just casually roll out the back and having a blast um that yeah. wasn't me <laughs> <laughs> the first jump solo jump out of out of a plane you hesitate like no i didn't, you, no, I didn't hesitate no no I, you're getting you, you, if you hesitate they push you no, no <laughs> oh, okay. they, they, they won't push you but they will you'll you'll be off the course straight away you'll miss, oh wow you'll miss your qualification refuse to jump you're off the course so fair enough it's that serious so a couple of people did refuse to jump and they're off the course and it's it's a pretty shameful thing too. Like you go back to your unit after being away for weeks on a training course and have to come back and tell your boss that um, you wasted wasted the time and the money yeah. to go down there. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's it not a good. Costs a, the government a lot of money to train one yeah, person. That's it. So you make sure you jump. <laughs> so uh, two thousand and six, six, you uh, head into Timor. So. 
first time boots on the ground. What's the environment like? What, what's, uh, what's your job? Yeah, well, I, I was part of the 3rd Combat Service Support Battalion, which is uh, part of 3rd Brigade in Townsville, so at Laverack Barracks. And I was in my first year um, in, in a unit uh, since graduating the college. And uh, I was a warehouse manager at the time, so I hadn't yet specialised in the aerial side of things, um, just on the ground logistics. And we were part of the initial deployment um, in that 2006 push, which were known, obviously, Timor in 99 was when um, it first all came up over there. And it kind of came up again in 2006. Um, for you had President Al-Khatiri and Prime Minister Ramos Horta. And um, the Indonesian rebels wanted Al-Khatiri to be in control, and the East Timorese general population wanted Ramos Water in control. And uh, the East, uh, sorry, the Indonesian rebels were effectively burning down and burning down the capital, Dili, and just intimidating everyone that was potentially going to vote for Ramos Horta to be in control. So we um, we deployed as a peace enforcing uh, in a peace enforcing role. It wasn't a warlike situation, but it was still pretty. Um, pretty unique i remember i remember arriving there in country and the special forces had already been in and cleared the threats when we arrived but at the same time being the first regular unit arriving in country um being in a mog driving along the streets of Dili and seeing all these buildings on fire it was pretty nervous nerve-wracking like i remember i was i was like 21 at the time and i remember feeling like wow this is this is real all of a sudden uh, we're in a place where where things couldn't go wrong, um, so it was it was a unique feeling. Um, but in my role, I didn't really, I didn't, I wasn't in a combat role. I was in a support role. Uh, but having said that, the the way that the Indonesian rebels really worked is they knew what our laws of armed conflict were and our rules of engagement, and they really um, didn't. They knew they couldn't stand up to the Australian Defence Force in a, in a firepower sense. So they they opted to use. Sticks and stones, bats and slingshots was their go-to weapons um, because they knew we wouldn't basically use lethal force if um, they threatened us with that. Um, so they were they were kind of clever, but at the same time, they still had a legitimate threat. Like the the way that they would operate would be they would ambush a, a vehicle and they'd drag a spike chain across the road and box them in and then uh, emerge from the bushes with hundreds of people with sticks and stones. So... Um, it was still pretty effective use of force from their side, their side of things, and it was it, it took a long time before the before vehicles were allowed to um, to really drive by themselves. We had to drive in convoy to to be ready to handle that sort of threat. But um, yeah, for for me personally, the the deployment was um, was pretty smooth. It's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't think it, it matters what capacity you're in. Like uh, you know, a, a group of twelve soldiers against a hundred people, you're still grossly outnumbered, mm, no matter yeah. how much firepower That's you it. got. When they, so. when they when they rush you like that, it's 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 um, no guarantee that you're going to be safe. That's for sure. So, um, <clears throat> but yeah, it was uh, the the deployment was was fantastic. It, it was. It was something that I learned a lot from. Um, I always, I've always been a fan of the Defence Force in general. Like I said, I joined straight from school, and the, not only financially, as I mentioned before, but just leadership qualities and just life experiences. It, it really set me up, and so um, the deployment it was even more so on that. It, it grounded me even even more, and just the the understanding of what it is to be in the Defence Force, the political nature of it as well, and um, 
Yeah. It sort of forces you to grow up real quick. Absolutely, absolutely. It did. Yep. And um, that's why anytime I ever meet someone who's young who doesn't know what they want to do, I always say, well, go and join the Defence Force. It'll, 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 do, it'll be everything you need it to be for you. And uh, it doesn't mean you need to be in it forever, but it uh, means you, yeah, you get those skills. What sticks out to you the most about that deployment? What, what, what do you take back from that? Um, I remember how hard you worked. <laughs> the the hours you work on deployment are crazy, um, especially when you're setting up there. Like we, we we had no logistic spaces at all when we arrived. We had to establish everything, and and I remember uh, you'd work you'd work probably um, on average like a twenty hour day. Um, you see, maybe maybe four hours sleep if you're lucky, um, and you do that for for six months. It was. <laughs> we, I remember two weeks into the deployment, I remember thinking, I don't know if I can handle this. Like, I honestly didn't think I could keep up with the workload and um, was just neurologically burning out. But weirdly, uh, weirdly enough, after after two weeks, you actually your body just adjusted and and it became the norm and you're fine. And six months ends up going by pretty quickly. But I do remember when I got home and put my head on a pillow for the first time, I, I slept for like 22 <laughs> hours. 22 hours straight, uh, uninterrupted hell. sleep when I got home. And and uh, I think the next night was 16 hours and then 12 hours and then back to normal, sort of eight hours Holy sleep, six shit. hours sleep. But yeah, so that's what I remember most. It was very physically demanding the whole time. It was just great. Yeah, because, I mean, you, your body heals when you sleep. Mm. So it would never have that opportunity to do that. Yeah. So it just grinds you down. Yeah. Six months is a long time it, it ago. Was, it, it, was, it, it was definitely tough, like I said, particularly the first couple of months when we were trying to establish all the logistics um, bases and that. It was it was full-on work. So, um, yeah. I get, always I take my hat off to anyone who's deploying. It's, uh, it's a hard job. 2010 rolls around and... <laughs> You know where this is going. Yeah, I do. I do. I do. <laughs> I have, I, and I have, I have a very interesting story when it comes to how I um, ended my time with the military. I was to give you some context before I reveal what it is exactly. I, um, I was the second person in the history of the entire defence force to do what I did, uh, and so <laughs> naturally, um, it, you might be surprised, but. What what I did was I is I I'd come to a point of time where I decided I I probably didn't want to be a, a an officer in the army anymore. My wife and I were expecting our first child, and I just didn't want to deploy or go and exercise whilst that was um, on the horizon. Uh, and I didn't really I just didn't want to continue down the path of an officer. It was leading to more administration and that sort of stuff. So discharge was really on the on the on the cards for me. But um, before I I discharge I I, I wanted to consider all my other options because I really did like the Defence Force. And I reflected at the time thinking that I probably would have had a longer career in the Defence Force had I joined um, as, a, as an OR or another rank, so enlisted as a soldier instead of an officer because um, they just had less administration and they were more hands-on. And that, that was probably something that I reflected on. But I wasn't, a, I wasn't in that position. I was, I was an officer. I was a captain at the time in the Army. And... Giving all considerations of all these things, I thought to myself, well, what other options are there? And I saw that submariners in the Navy were was a critical trade and they were desperately trying to recruit people for that. And um, I thought, gee whiz, that would be interesting being a submariner. <laughs> so I wrote a letter to my CO um, requesting that I be given permission to relinquish my commission as an officer 
and to be enlisted as a seaman in the Navy uh, and to become a submariner. Now, this had to go to the Chief of Army to to be approved, which uh, he did. <laughs> he approved it. And I was no longer a commissioned officer and I was on basic training <laughs> as, a, as a seaman submariner. So uh, that, I tell you, was... A very, very interesting period of time in my life. I had to bite my tongue going from having significant rank Tell to, us why. to no rank. Why did you have to bite your tongue? Oh, man. It was oh, it was just, as you can appreciate, like we talked about before, um, basic training is kind of like that full metal jacket experience. You, you, you go through it. And when you go through it for the first time, you know that there's no other choices. You know there's no other options or paths. You have to just bite your tongue and you just need to do what you're told. And... That's fine, but doing it the second time when I was just yesterday a commissioned officer that could have <laughs> put these people that were now yelling at me, I could have told them to to, to go and pick up rubbish and they would have had to. <laughs> <laughs> to go from being an officer to being a, back on basic training and this time not as an officer recruit but as a um, as a, as a as an OR was like, oh my goodness, it was just Oh yeah, it was a challenge. It was a challenge because it was. It's basic training is all about doing what you're told when you're told how they tell you to do it. When you went through it the second time, <laughs> right? And they're, and they're trying to beast you. Well, you just sort of. Did you ever roll your eyes and like, oh, no, what's going on here? Well, I, I, I've always been a really polite kind of guy, and so I, I, I think I did it well. But the the one thing that allowed that that got me kind of through it was I I negotiated that I was not to receive a pay cut. I, so I still was a paid as though I was a captain in the army, but I had no rank at all. So I was the highest paid recruit by a mile. And eventually the grapevine got out that um, amongst my cohort on this course that I was a former officer, like last week, former officer. Kind last of week. <laughs> and um, that I was still on my officer pay and all that sort of stuff. And so that threw a spanner in the works of how people treated me. They didn't know how to treat me. That was weird. I mean, I still kept towing the line and I was still effectively doing everything that I was told. But within my own head, it was it was a battle. And and, and I actually didn't stick around long because uh, my wife and I, as, you, as I mentioned, we were expecting our first child. And, and at this point in the pregnancy, um, it was identified that my child, well, my daughter was uh, going to be a special needs daughter and there were complications with the, the, the birth. So... With that, I ended up deciding to pull the plug on the Defence Force and go back to just discharging. Now, naturally, when you discharge from the Defence Force, um, it's not so simple, as I mentioned with the old bayonet story on basic training for me. <laughs> they don't just let you just get out. But the difference was this time... Did you time, try it with the bayonet? <laughs> <laughs> no, not, no, I didn't go down that path. But the path that I did go down was the fact that I had... Uh, first-hand experience in in all the paperwork necessary to <laughs> to discharge, and naturally I'd done that for my subordinates when I was an officer many many times. Um, so I, in my spare time, did, that one evening, did you abuse your power, <laughs> or did you just utilize it to its full extent? I, I don't think I abused it. I just had an inside knowledge, like I I knew more about the discharge process than the people that were in charge of me. So I I literally. Um, one evening, I just grabbed all the paperwork, filled it all out, and I literally went and knocked on the brigade commander's door, so a general's door. <laughs> I went and knocked on a general's door, an admiral, not a general, but equivalent to a general in the army. I went and knocked on his door and explained the situation, and and 
it said I needed his signature because my staff were telling me it was going to take it minimum three months and I wanted it to take minimum three days. And um, sure enough, he signed it on the spot. He uh, empathised with my case and said, no worries. Um, I didn't have a return of service obligation or anything like that and uh, I was out that afternoon from the Defence Force. But interestingly, it, it actually did lead to complications down the track um, because I got out so quickly and on a, on a self-elected administrative front, it meant that my medical conditions uh, from injuries that I'd suffered whilst being a parachutist um, weren't yet recognised by the Defence Force. And so it took a lot of time, years, it took years to actually have that sorted out through the Department of Veterans Affairs, to have those injuries recognised and taken care of and all that sort of stuff. But we got there in the end. Um, but yeah, <laughs> it was tricky. When you got out, did you did you feel uh, like you were missing something? Um, I don't feel like I was missing something. Um, I like as I mentioned, I was a big fan of the Defence Force. I, I I had a great time in the Defence Force. Uh, I was just ready for a different chapter of my life. I I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I I went from wanting to be a serviceman to wanting to not have anyone tell me what to do. <laughs> So I think that's what we all want. I wanted to be my own boss <laughs> yeah. and uh, and just run my own ship. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's that's admirable. So, you once you're out, you what what is, sort of stuff do you start doing to try and? Yeah, well, for me, um, once we got through that initial period of just making sure I had some work to pay the bills, I ended up settling on uh, a role where I opened my own supplement store. Um, so. That was that was um, uh, working, and in that process, I actually started uncovering the world of social media because I had to market my business, and um, I d- didn't really know how to, so I just started fumbling my way through it. And interestingly enough, um, this is where the whole arm wrestling story started for me. Was I lost an arm wrestle to my distributor of, of the uh, the wholesale products, and uh, he kicked my ass. This guy was a um, a martial artist in Taekwondo and he had a, a good strong hand and wrist on him and he, and he belted me. And uh, being the competitive guy that I am, I said to him, look, when you come back next month, I'm going to beat you. And, and uh, not only that, I'm never going to lose to you again. And uh, he just chuckled as he, as, as he left the store. I thought, yeah, whatever. But um, the instant he walked out, I was onto YouTube and onto the, the internet and was researching arm wrestling technique and... Uh, he came back the next month, and uh, <laughs> let's just say that I, I, it all came true. I beat him, and uh, there's no way he could touch me now. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the catalyst. Yeah, that was the catalyst. Like I, I always loved arm wrestling, even from a kid. Um, one interesting story, I remember I came home from, from school one day. Um, it was in about year 11, grade 11, and my mum would always ask me, how was your day at school, Ryan? What was, um, what was the best and worst thing? And I said, there was nothing good today. I said, I had the worst day I've ever had in my life. And mum's thinking something really bad's happened. And I said, uh, she said, oh, why? what happened? I said, I dropped my first ever catch in cricket and I lost my first ever arm wrestle. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so that was my worst day in, in my school uh, schooling career at that time, dropping a catch in cricket for the first time and losing an arm wrestle. I still remember the guy who beat me too. His name was Jimmy Coleman. You know, Jimmy, if you're watching this, yes. rematch. Yeah, it's on. I, I, I've been waiting for the day to cross Jimmy Coleman's path again just so I can put that one to bed. But um, <laughs> but yeah, so that that was the catalyst for me. And, you know, not only was that a, a catalyst in that sense, but I actually um, 
as, if you if you remember back, I said before I joined the military, I was trying to become a tennis professional. And I had aspirations right from early childhood to be a professional sportsman. And when I didn't make it in tennis, I, I thought that's kind of the end of the dream of being a sports person. Uh, and when I found arm wrestling again, not only did I want to just beat this wholesale distributor, <laughs> but I thought straight away, here's my second chance as a sport. I want to be a world champion. And the reason I had that belief was when I looked at the sport of arm wrestling, the average age of world champions was like 40. Oh, wow. So I realized I hadn't missed the boat. And I thought, because I was 27 at the time, and um, I thought, here we go. Here's, here's my genuine second chance at being an elite athlete. And, uh, and from day one, I went all in. <laughs> you certainly did. <laughs> so in doing a, a bit of research before the... Um before this podcast, you know, I, I Googled arm wrestling and there was only sort of like a handful of movies. And obviously the main one is over the top with yeah. Sylvester Stallone. And my, my whole take on arm wrestling was you flip your hat on backwards and then you just blast it. Right. But there's so many different techniques and, and, and things that you got to learn. Like it's just so much, it's such a technical sport. Yeah. A lot of people, um, misread the sport of arm wrestling. A lot of people think it's purely just about strength. Um, where I describe arm wrestling as 50% a strength sport and 50% a combat sport. And what I mean by that is um, a strength sport is a human against an object where the object remains the same for everyone. Think deadlifting, think bench pressing. Um, we're all up against a bar. We know what's going on. The conditions remain the same. But a combat sport, on the other hand, a human against a human, um, Everything one athlete does affects the other person's ability to impart um, their force uh, as well. And so arm wrestling is a micro-combat sport in that sense that every single thing you can do and imagine you can do with your hand um, becomes a weapon against your opponent in a way that you can only really understand once you grip up with a professional arm wrestler um, and you feel how much goes on. And... Arm wrestling is exactly that. It's it's a real... Com Don't get me wrong. You need to be strong. You can't re rest purely on technique. Technique will get you so far, but it's the combination of having great technique and being exceptionally strong that makes a professional arm wrestler. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating sport. And comparing it to, say, novices who barroom arm wrestling or anything like that uh, really just used internal rotation of their arm just they put their elbow down and just try to go directly sideways um, using just their rotator cuff and uh, not only is that weak but it's very very dangerous you'll see the amount of videos out there on YouTube of arm breaks um, it's always novices on novices and it's always uh, this this incorrect vector where you just can't keep safe if, if you are the weaker person when you're trying to arm wrestle in that fashion um the risk of you breaking your humerus is incredibly high so much so that i would say um look to give you a bit of context when i part of my job as pound for pound arm wrestling is to host tournaments and run events and i would say in novice events when it's novices against other novices it's like one in three events people actually break their arm um, and it's because they're all arm wrestling on this vector. And I, I, I hate running novice events because of that one reason. Um, I actually personally have evolved to taking a, a position where I don't allow novices to compete. I have to say you must spend time in an amateur in a club to, to learn how to keep yourself safe because no one wants to see a broken arm. That's fair. 
Yeah, and yeah. A- amongst amateurs who I would define amateurs as people that have been arm wrestling for six to twelve months and know the basics of the of keeping themselves um, safe, it's like one in ten events they'll get a broken arm. And then if you compare that to professional level arm wrestlers that are really legitimately full time in the sport, um, it's like it just never happens. Like one in a thousand events, maybe you might see uh, an arm break. So, um, but at the end of the day, it's um, it's really not that bad. You compare it to other sports, boxing, where you're going to end up with head injuries and brain damage and rugby you're gonna break your neck maybe or like there's there's much more dangerous and more significant injuries that occur in other sports um wrestling the worst thing can happen is you break your humerus it's it's not nice but it's really not that bad at the end of the day yep yep for sure when you first started out how did you promote yourself yes well the social media side of things um has been an evolution for me in a lot of respects. Um, I've learned so much. I would call myself a self-taught marketer. Um, and at first, like if I go back to my very first YouTube videos, they're pretty bad. They're pretty, just... I hear you, brother. Oh, I'm in the same boat. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a process. Um, the key is the key is uh, is just being self-aware. And if if you love it and you enjoy it. You naturally end up finding the right way, and uh, and the reason you have to love it, it's all the old cliches. Um, you won't the old you won't work a day in your life if you're doing something that you love um, is is very true. Because if you don't love it, the failure is going to kick you in the teeth, and you're going to it's going to piss you off, yeah. and you're going to be like, I am not doing this. I'm like putting... when your cameras fucking fail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the amount of times like the majority. The, the, here's the thing: the current climate that we live in, in a marketing sense, is. Um, is so much that the middleman has been taken away. And what the middleman I refer to is, let's say, television networks. Once upon a time, to, to reach a global audience, you needed to be on TV. It's the only way you could do it. And to be on TV was a virtually impossible task for someone um, at the ground level. You had to know a lot of people and be in the right networks and the right circles. And not only that, um, you, recording equipment, cameras, uh, microphones, um, weren't cheap 10 years ago. They yeah. were... 10 times the price that they are now where the bottom line is um, now through social media, we have a different climate where we can with our phone record very high quality content and then use distribution networks like YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter to reach a truly global global audience. So I started to market my businesses and in an arm wrestling sense, like I said, right from the beginning, I knew I wanted to be an arm wrestler and I, I knew that there wasn't a career yet in arm wrestling. You couldn't, prize money alone was like a couple hundred bucks here and there. It was never going to be a career. So I decided from day one that I was going to turn arm wrestling into a career. I didn't know how long it was going to take, um, but I was determined to do it. And I started by just being very authentic in my content that I released. Uh, my first few videos, um, if you go and watch them, they, they talk about my aspirations but they also talk about the fact that I don't know how I'm going to get there. But I do say that I'm going to bring everyone along for the ride. I'm going to fumble through this with with everyone and I'm going to keep on creating content. And through that process, I discovered some good examples to follow. Some uh, Gary Vaynerchuk was the guy I discovered that just was the shining example for me. Um, a lot of people watch Gary Vaynerchuk and enjoy his content for what it is and never take any action. Where I looked at Gary Vaynerchuk and I said to myself, how on earth is this guy so damn successful with attracting an audience? Um, 
and I just started replicating the principles of production, the production principles he had, the distribution principles, and his patience and gratitude and authenticity principles. And I just started implementing all of those things for arm wrestling. And I'll tell you, it took four and a half years for anything to happen. Four and a half years, in that first four and a half years, I earned in my arm wrestling business $34.50. <laughs> so there you go. So $34.50 um, in the first four and a half years. And now I'll tell you, I make $34.50 per hour on YouTube alone, um, which I've always been very open with my books too. I found that that was actually something that my audience really um, appreciate and it helps them to understand what I'm doing. Because um, at the end of the day, they know I've got to pay the bills. But I'm very transparent with what I do with the money, where I'm investing next. Um, like for instance, I've just hired a, a, a post-production editor um, from the USA and um, he's now helping me to even make the content even even better. Because uh, at the end of the day, I understand that um, it's a long process and if you try to claim to be an expert, uh, you, people see through you. So instead of trying to claim to be an expert, you you offer them just an, uh, an ability to come along as you fumble through things. And I did that with arm wrestling. And after four and a half years, it's it started to take off. And now I get to call myself a career arm wrestler. Yeah, I know as well as you do how much it takes to, to sort of edit this sort of stuff out. But yeah. you, like an hour episode... It's not just an hour's work. Like <laughs> yeah. you could well, listen to that episode five times. That's I would, five I would hours. Say an, I'd say an hour's work, <clears throat> an, an hour episode. Like for me on my channel, we, when I count all of the content that flows down from one hour episode, I would say an hour's. Are you a tradie or do you know a tradie that battles with mental health? Do you want to start a conversation but don't know how? Maybe your mental health is suffering from wearing the same old dreary work shirts. Well, it doesn't have to, because Trademunt have got you covered. Trademunt workwear is sure to start a conversation. What, with their combination of, well, think of camo, but high-vis? Is that right? Mm. Alright. These loud Larry colours are sure to draw attention. People told me you couldn't see mental health. You can now. People don't bring up mental health because it's awkward. Not as awkward as wearing a trademark shirt in public. Lol. So get on it, tradies. It's time to start a conversation and start looking after your mates. Because we all have something going on. Head over to trademark.com or head into your closest trade tool store and get your shirts. In your socks today. Trademark Mental Health Award winners of 2019. An hour episode is two days work. Hmm. Two days work for if one person was doing it. I used to be that only one person, but now I have an employee helping me. So it's I've, I've chopped it from two days to one day. Um, and with a team of people, you could turn it into five hours. But the man hours in a one-hour episode going out to all the networks and being edited and distributed, um, yeah, at least two days' work. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, it's not easy stuff. <laughs> and I've got a full-time job. Exactly. And, and it's not podcasting. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, that is the 
absolute reason why the cliche is the truth. You must love it because yeah. if you want to, if you want to chase anything like this, you've got to be willing to sacrifice watching television, going to the pub, going to the football, whatever it is that you used to do for fun. This has now got to replace that because the only way that you'll ever get it to the point where it can replace your job is by putting this amount of time in. Um, so that I went ex- and bought a 55-inch TV, and I don't use the bloody thing because <laughs> <laughs> I'm well, always that's, in every, Everyone's consuming content on their phones now, aren't they? So, they are. Like, the world has definitely changed, and and um, for for anyone who is in the creative industry of 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 this, and, and and you know, I don't I don't limit myself to to podcasts. I actually I really do believe that audio is powerful because people can consume it anywhere. Um, people and, and a lot of people learn in different ways as well. So I'm more of a visual audio mm. learner. Yeah. Uh, I I can't sit down and read a book. My mind yeah. just me too. Just, I, can't. I don't just read fries my brain. I don't. I yeah, my wife's a reader and I'm not a reader. And uh, I've tried. I, I've read one novel in my life since high school, <laughs> and I didn't want to do it. I did it for because my wife asked me to, and I hated reading. It, so. <laughs> The, the only books. Well, you I, want to promise. <laughs> yeah, the only books that uh, I don't think. Uh, I just don't think I've read a book. Like, voluntarily read a book in my life, like from cover to cover. Really? Ever, ever. Oh, no. I, I'm able to read books, but when it comes to learning, hmm. yeah, it just fries my brain. Like, I'm with I, you. I, I can read a good uh, story, but yeah. yeah. So, so, so for me, with the arm wrestling content, um, I. I I spent a lot of time uh, creating my long-form content, which flows down to both podcasts and YouTube videos and Facebook videos and Instagram posts and Twitter posts. It all leads back to it. And the cool thing is the sport is really growing because of um, because of it. Not only myself, but there's a, there's a handful of, of good content creators out there and there's a, it's always increasing. So the sport itself is starting to be recognized. Like literally yesterday I was down in Brisbane visiting my daughter uh, who's in hospital at the moment? And on the on the train ride home, um, a young man, seventeen years old, came up to me and said, "Mr. Bowen," and uh, <laughs> looked at him and I said, hey, "How do you know who I am?" And he said, "Oh, I'm a big fan of arm wrestling." And um, I'd never met this guy before. He's never competed. He's never even put his elbow on a table. So he wasn't an arm wrestler. He was just an arm wrestling fan. And the cool thing was, he knew arm wrestling so well. We had a killer conversation about. The, the next WAL event that's happening just in two days' time, he gave me like detailed predictions on who he thought was going to wow. win. Wow! And he was a genuine fan of arm wrestling, and that's it was super cool. It was amazing just to see <clears throat> that happening, um, and that's happening on an increasing um, rate. I've had so, it once. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I had it once. I went to the knife show, the, the first Queensland knife show, and this guy's walking out, and he's looking at me, and it, like really weird. And I'm like, this guy's wigging out at me, eh? And I'm like, what's going on here? And I, I had a friend with me. And um, we sort of walked past each other. And he, and he goes, uh, Kev? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's me. And he goes, oh, yeah, I, I really like your videos and stuff. And I'm like, oh, thanks, man. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. And I, yeah, it was, it was really cool. But it's only happened once. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but that's I, I, I figure for every one person that comes up to you and says hello and asks for a photo or whatever, there's probably five or ten more that saw you, recognized you, but just didn't come up to you. Yeah. Because I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small percentage of people in, that actually are willing to go up to someone like that. So, yeah. So I like, I like it because I'm thinking, yeah, this is indicators that it's all working, it's all growing, and 
Yeah, good times. It was it was actually really nice because um, you know I'd been watching these guys on Facebook and and whatnot. Well, some of the makers that were at the show, and it was really good to put to meet them in person as well. So yeah. Nice. yeah. So for you, when was the big moment when you finally started to meet your idols? Oh, about a year and a half ago, everything changed. Um, I'd been building a brand in in the in the sport, um, and a lot of people early days, and you and you'll get this no matter what your brand is that you're building. A lot of people will think, "Hang on, you got no credibility. Like, uh, why do you deserve this?" And you know, a year and a half ago, um, I was invited to help promote a tournament in the USA, and the the gentleman who invited me was a very significant arm wrestler named Travis Bajant, who is multiple world champion in the super heavyweight division. He he coordinates events in the USA, a lot of them. And he rang me up and said he wanted to bring me to the tournament to help him promote. And I asked him why he wanted to, me to do that. And he said, because every time I open Facebook, all I see is you. So <laughs> you're everywhere, so I'd like to uh, get you to help me promote this event. So... He paid for my, my flight over there. Wow. And um, and he was looking for a place for me to stay. He said, oh, like, amongst the arm wrestling community, we often always stay with each other. And he rattled off a few people that lived in the local area. They said, like, yeah, you can stay at this guy's house, this guy's house, yada, yada, yada. And then just jokingly, he said to me, look, oh, even John Brzezank lives just 40 minutes down the road. You could stay with him. Now, John Brzezank mm-hmm. is the greatest arm wrestler to ever have walked this planet. And yeah. I actually think... <laughs> Not only is he the greatest arm wrestler, I think he's the greatest athlete in the history of sport. And the reason I say that is he was, for 33 years consecutively, the most dominant arm wrestler in the world. And uh, there's, a, there's a cult idol about him pulling John. And um, go and watch that when you get a chance. It's on YouTube. But this guy lived 40 minutes down the road from where the tournament was going to be held. And like I said, Travis just jokingly said, oh, look, even John Brissett lives down the road. You go stay with him. Um, of course, not actually literally meaning it, but I... Um, you were like, you, you please. <laughs> I, I, well, I didn't, I didn't say yes to Travis. I just kind of chuckled with him. But once that phone conversation hung up, I uh, I messaged John Brzezank because on Facebook, it's easy to find uh, people. And yeah. I messaged John Brzezank, told him that Travis had invited me to this tournament. I was going to be there to try to help promote it. And, um, and I, I didn't expect him to say anything, but... Um, like a week later, he came back and said, yeah, man, that'll be fine. You can come stay. And so I was like, what? <laughs> I've got to stay at John Brzezak's house. This is, this is like like beyond the wildest dreams of an arm wrestler, to go and to be invited to stay at the greatest arm wrestler of all time's home. Um, so for me, I had to like try to control my fanboy side and, and not, not be a fanboy yeah. and just try to be a normal human because John, whenever he appears at an arm wrestling tournament, all people want to do is shake his hand and have a photo and and and, and bow yeah. down to John. Um, so I'm like, all right, just you got to be normal. So <laughs> anyway, I, so I went along to to John's place. Please tell me it wasn't normal. <laughs> no, it was good. I managed, I, managed, I think I might have fanboyed a little bit, but I but, but I got to stay there for a week. It wasn't it wasn't oh wow. It wasn't just a short period of time. It was a week, so I really got to know John. And um, John had retired from the sport two years earlier. He retired. As a world champion, he defeated Devin Larratt in the 2015. He what? Yeah, he beat Devin. That man, Devin Larratt is huge. Yeah, John crushed him. <laughs> well, he didn't crush him, but he beat him 2-1 in the world championship Far final. Far out. Um, so John, had, John beat Devin 
uh, as his last hurrah. For anyone listening to this, go onto YouTube and look up these two blokes, right? Devin Larratt and John Brzezink, and look at the size difference in these guys. Yeah, Devin's a big guy. He's tall as He's well, tall. like, and his arms are like John's, fifteen meters long. John John was always like a ninety-five kilo maximum, sort of a hundred kilo guy in his prime, and that. So, but anyway, so so John had retired from the sport, and um, and I had gone there. I, I was already creating content on on YouTube and podcasts, and I'd gone there with the hope of thinking, oh, imagine if I could get an interview from John Brzezink. How amazing would that be? So I'd, I'd lugged the, all my um, equipment there. And when I hit John up to see if he'd be in an interview with me, he said, nah. He said, I've, I've retired from the sport and I've said everything I need to say. I, I, it's always the same questions. And to Ooh. be honest, I just would prefer not to. And so with that, I, I naturally respected the man and thought, oh, well, look, staying here at his house is still an amazing thing. If I didn't get content, I didn't get content. That's okay. And... It was on the final day that I was there that I filmed a wrap-up of the tournament just of myself. And John sat across the table from me and watched me do it and um, was behind the camera just observing. And he <laughs> and at the end of the video, it was like a 10-minute video where I just wrapped up things. He said to me, man, you did that really naturally and very easily. Like, what are you, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? What, what's your objective on, on this whole thing? And I told – and so that opened up the conversation to – making a career out of arm wrestling to creating content about it. And I said that my main objective is to get it to the point where athletes can be paid like they are in other sports and to create legitimate avenues for, uh, for not only athletes, but for commentators, for referees, for, for all the different people that are involved in the sport to actually have a, have a career and over five or six beers and, and that conversation, John ended up saying, all right, I'm in. It rekindled his I'm, fire. I'm in. Let's, let's, let's do it. And so John, from that moment, um, has been a regular on my show. He has. And helps. And I've stayed at his house multiple times since. And, um, and I actually am privileged enough to now call him a, a truly good friend. Um, he was my corner man at my World Arm Wrestling League de- debut in Los Angeles just a month ago. He was literally in the, my corner giving me coaching and that the people that like the the arm wrestlers in the room and the people that watch that are like how the hell did this There's random this, Aussie this get John Brzezik pale redheaded Aussie fella <laughs> get John Brzezik come over and corner. steal our John yeah, so, <laughs> so I had the greatest arm wrestler of all time in my corner and like I said it, it truly is a privilege to call him a friend and um and so it was that year and a half ago being invited by Travis that led to meeting John that has just since then been like an enormous injection of credibility. I've got time to spend with Devin Larratt um, at his home. I'm now coached by another t- uh, gentleman, Todd Hutchings. He's a multiple world champion as well. So I have a really amazing circle of uh, people that I get to rub shoulders with now and learn from. And it's turning me into a pretty kick-ass arm wrestler, to be honest. Like, yeah. I know I was, always, I was always pursuing the elite level. But now it's like supercharged by. Did it take long to kick up the gears, or? Well, no, I've been training hard. Like I said, right from the beginning, my goal was to be a world champion. Um, I didn't declare that straight away, but it, in my head, I wanted to go all the way, and um, and so just now being uh, so, I was always progressing well, always climbing the ranks in the Australian ranks very quickly, um, 
faster than people expected me to. But now it's happening on the international level. Like I just I won my opening match in the WAL against Mexico's number one ranked arm wrestler, and um, and I I just don't even feel like I'm even close to my limit yet. So I feel like there's a lot of upside, and the people I'm surrounded with, uh, like I said, supercharging that, and it's it's exciting as an arm wrestler. It's exciting, and also as a business person in the business of promoting arm wrestling it's equally as exciting because both of those things in my life are rapidly growing <laughs> so it's really cool i know that uh doing podcasting and all that it takes a lot of time but also you're traveling a lot more as well mm. so how does how does that weigh on the family I, side I, of things i treat it like uh, my family and i look at it like as a, like as though i am in a fly-in fly-out job Ah. Um, and the the benefits are actually the time I spend at home is actually far better than most fly and fly out jobs. I pretty much allocate one third of my year to being somewhere else, um, and it works out to about once every one and a half to two months I'm away at a tournament. Most of the time it's overseas, uh, USA probably seventy percent of the time, maybe one or two events in Europe. I'm going to China next month. Wow. Um, and then there's a couple of Australian ones that I'll do as well. So there is a lot of travel, family. Uh, but the good thing is now it's it's no longer a hobby. When it's, this was a hobby, it's, it's, it yeah. was a big risk and it was a it was a big leap of faith, particularly for my wife to be willing to because I was spending our family's budget to travel. I wasn't spending the business yep. money. I didn't have the first time I travelled was to London to compete in an Arm Wars series. Um, and we just forked out the money out of the family budget for me to go for a weekend. I literally flew in on Friday. I flew it's home on Monday. It's got to be scary. It was, yeah. We, 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 we spent a lot of money. And um, we didn't know that it was going to kick back eventually. But but nowadays, like, like the gentleman that organizes Arm Wars now organizes the World Arm Wrestling League. And I got the reason I got invited to the World Arm Wrestling League was because I was on good terms with this guy and put on a good show at that Arm Wars event. So... Some six years later, that investment has really returned. and um, But now it's to the point where, like I said, financially the business is good. So now the business is paying for the travel and that's no worries. Yeah, that's so, great. That's yeah. awesome. Where do you go from here? Ah, where, where to from here? Like I said, there's really two columns of my life that I'm invested heavily in. One is the arm wrestler side and the other one is the arm wrestling promotion side. Um I haven't said it publicly, but uh, Ooh, I'll, I'll exclusive. <laughs> but I'll say it now. But and what I'm referring to is my goal as an arm wrestler. Always, I have I have the goal that's public, and I have the goal that's in my head. And my the one in my head's always higher than the one yeah. that's public. <laughs> and my most recent public one for uh, arm wrestling is that I wanted I want to win the world arm wrestling league world title, which I believe um, can and will happen. Um, but the real goal in my head is to is to truly become the number one arm wrestler on the planet. Um, first of all, for my weight division, um, and then after that, just for any weight division, I want to be able to. You want to I, dominate I know, all? I know, I know, I'll never be able to be a John Brazent because he dominated for thirty three years. There just isn't enough time. But there's a goal out there that I just want to be the dude that no one on the planet can beat. That's the goal. That's the, that's, well, that's, that's for me as an arm wrestler. Hey, you got to aim high, brother. And you know, you know, it's been me my whole life. I've never, I've never shied away from a goal ever in my life <laughs> when it comes to sporting. And for 
the thing is, so many people will hear that, especially like if this gets out to the arm wrestling world, which I'm sure it will because I'll probably even, uh, push it in yeah. front of them. I'm going to send this to John. <laughs> so you don't know me, but yeah. you know this guy. <laughs> and here's what he's got to say. But the, the, the thing is that um, it'll be met with plenty of criticism, as as it always is. But, you know, every single you gotta, stage you that I've plans, ever man. been in has been met with this criticism, every single one. <laughs> Uh, if I go back to being a kid playing tennis, when I was in Division Three at the local comp, all I wanted to do was be in Division One, and I was I was I was like a like a cattle dog at the <laughs> organisers saying, "Put me in Division One, put me in Division One," and they're like, "You know, good enough for a Division One." I'm like, mm-hmm. "You're gonna put me in Division One, trust me. I'm gonna end up in Division One, and not only am I gonna end up in Division One, I'm gonna win Division One when I get there." And and I was I was just always like that. And I the the way I went about that was I would I would say to them, "Look." If anyone in Division One can't make it for that week, if they're sick, if their car breaks down, whatever, I am the person you're going to call up to say I'll fill in. And they did that. They actually let me fill in for Division One a bunch of times. And I'd get there and I'd and I'd I'd mix it up with them, and they'd be like, "Shit, I didn't realize you were you could do that." And I've always done that. I've always thrown myself way into the deep end. And, but the thing is, like I said, for me as an arm wrestler, I don't feel like I've even got close to my my potential. Um, physically, I feel like there's a lot of upside, and surrounding myself with the, with the, the legends of the sport that I am, I'm just getting the best possible guidance you could possibly get. And I think that it's all going to result in me getting there. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the arm wrestler side. Then there's the arm wrestling promotion side, which um, for me is equal. But the good thing is it's so complementary to both to the arm wrestler as well. Um, and that's the goal of turning the sport into something that is truly globally recognized. And financially, I want the company to get to a position where where the top five guys in the world are all making 200 grand a year. Like even, even that is a low number when you compare it to mainstream sports. Mm. Um, like if John Brzenk had have been as dominant as he was in almost any other sport, uh, he would be a very wealthy man and he would have a back-end career as a commentator or something like that. But arm wrestling has never never had the money behind it. Uh, so I am determined to create something, a framework that can result in that. I'm, and, and the business is is moving towards that steadily. Um, with every every six months that goes by, the, um, the rungs on the ladder that I've been able to step up uh, significant and we're getting more money and more money into the business which means I'm paying athletes more and more and more and they're not being paid crazy amounts yet but the fact is they're being paid and mm. every event they're being paid more and more and more it's a, so, a huge step from what they had I want, so I want it to be a UFC I want it to be I, it will never be a UFC no but I want it to be an arm wrestling version of we well, do get a bit of smack talk though we, yeah, there is. There's a good mixture of some some characters in the arm wrestling world, are like 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 people like Jeff Hale. He is like he could walk into a WWE career. That man is an amazing amazing trash talker. Um, but a, a lot of people, um, yeah, some people are quiet. Some people really talk talk it up. There's a lot of sledging. I I personally like to. I like to. I for me, I balance trash talking with truth. Uh, I never like to trash talk in something I don't believe in because I think that that actually puts fear in yourself when you get to that moment in that arm wrestle. Yeah. If you've said something that you don't believe in, uh, then you're going to be nervous on the night. So 
I just be entirely truthful <laughs> when I trash talk. <laughs> and that makes people feel uncomfortable when I say I think I'm too good for someone. I really believe it. But I just say it. In the trash talking <laughs> sense, I say, look, I think I'm too good for you. I think that this is what's going to happen, and I like to predict exactly how the match is going to go. You like the Bruce Lee of the arm wrestling world. Yeah, I, I love Conor McGregor. The way Conor McGregor rose, like Conor McGregor now is different to the Conor yeah. McGregor. Yeah. But when Conor McGregor was on the rise, he used to predict exactly what he'd do, and then he'd do it. Yeah. And nothing cooler than that. And people hated <laughs> yeah. him whilst he was saying it. But when he started not only saying it but doing it, people started going, whoa, okay. Oy. So he had the goods. I like to say it. And if I say I'm going to do something and it backfires, um, then I'll wear it. I'll say, look, yeah, no dramas. That's fine. You were the better man on the day. And I, I appreciate that. And you surprised me here, here, and here. But it doesn't scare me about next time. I'll get you. Yeah. Because <laughs> 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 Devin Larratt, he, 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 he's good for it too. Oh, he's a, he's a master of psychology, yeah. that man. Like, and that's the thing. If, if you. If you and that's why I said you got to believe in your trash talk because if you don't believe in your trash talk, a good trash talker will sense that and crush you for it. Yeah. And then when you get to the match, they walk all over you. Yeah. <laughs> Where can people for, um, if people want to start arm wrestling, if they're interested interested in the sport, where can they? Well, the go? good the good news is no matter where you are on the planet, it's it's a truly accessible sport. Um, right from being three years old through to 80 years old this is a sport that can be um, accessed and uh, enjoyed so in in the first sense it's just start watching arm wrestling on on youtube start watching arm wrestling subscribe to you'll quickly find out where the arm wrestling content's coming from in the world and and just start by watching it and enjoying it um and then challenging your mates and then jumping on Facebook and searching for a club in your local area because they're popping up everywhere. and uh, That's good to hear. Yeah, and then, then the ball's rolling. But just watch it, love it. Study learn it. Some, learn some technique and go smash your mate who's never heard of it. And they'll be like, how on earth did you do that? And you're like, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, go and watch some. I know videos. a guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's how it began for me and that's how it begins for a lot of people. And um, the frameworks in clubs are, are ever-improving. Here down in Australia, we've got... Um, a pretty good federation. The Australian Arm Wrestling Federation takes care of the novice to amateur range and I take care of the pros. Um, so the paid pro events um, under pound-for-pound pound arm wrestling and the truly uh, grassroots all the way to national champion um, through the Australian Arm Wrestling Federation. And when I say pro, there's kind of two definitions of pro um, that float around. One is the professional standard of arm wrestling i i can arm wrestle against another elite arm wrestler and hang with them and then there's the pro side of it in the definition of you're paid to do it um so i take care of the pro side in the sense that you're paid to do it um where the arm wrestling federation does go all the way to the pro standard because um, like if you want to qualify for the world arm wrestling federation world championships you've got to you've got to win the australian nationals so the pathway to that is through them so Two two main pathways in Australia: the Australian Arm Wrestling Federation and Pound for Pound Arm Wrestling. Awesome. Where can people find you? I reckon there's if I reckon anywhere you can go onto. Just my goal is to is that someone can go onto any single social media platform, type in either Pound for Pound Arm Wrestling or Ryan Blue Bowen, and you'll find me. So, um, right now, I'll tell you where you can find me. My my best long form content's on YouTube. It's also in podcast form on everything. 
Um, Spotify is a good place to start. Uh, Facebook pages, there's there's a couple of Facebook pages. Just just go searching, you'll find it. Instagram, Twitter, even TikTok. That's my latest one that I'm that I'm all in on. So trend. If yeah, if you're a 12 year old and you're on TikTok, and there's a good chance you're about to discover arm wrestling. <laughs> So uh, and you'll never you'll never lose that fight with that school kid. Yeah, that's it. Well, that's that's what I one of the things I love about the sport is that it's not always the big guy who wins as well. It's 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 not that obvious. It's well, and and there's nothing better than the kid who's been ostracized at school, um, been bullied for a while, learning some arm wrestling technique and then challenging the bully to an arm wrestle and belting him. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be a satisfying moment for a kid, I reckon. And uh, yeah, and also um, among genders as well. Uh, when at, at, at the kids' level, you know, females are females are better at arm wrestling. I, I, I've I've done I've seen a lot of it. Under twelve year olds, the females that kick ass, they really right. really do, and they 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 enjoy it, they love it, and it's got to be something satisfying for them too when they can put the boys in their place. So um, so if you're a girl, uh, get into it. Is there a women's division? Yeah, women's divisions, absolutely. In Australia, um, we don't have the numbers in the women's as we do in the men's, but it is um, globally well and truly the case. And it's just this harder ball to get rolling um, because it is instinctively men gravitate toward it more. Mm. But no, it's a fantastic sport. And um, the community behind arm wrestling is actually one of the big strengths. It's, It's, I've never been involved in a sport that has a better closer community and what I mean by that is I could go anywhere on the planet and I know that an arm wrestler would have a place for me to stay and this is before I became known in the sport um, even at the amateur level everyone is so welcoming we all share because it is a combat sport and a strength sport we all the the, the knowledge flows down from the top to the new guys very quickly and everyone is always willing to teach someone who's on the rung below them how to get up onto the next rung so the stronger your club, the stronger, the more potential you have as an individual. So, the Brisbane club, I'll tell you right now, easily, and the the Perth and Melbourne clubs won't like me saying this, but Brisbane club is easily the best club <laughs> in Australia. Easily. Ooh, sounds like a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you about it. Um, I, I wish you all the best in the future. It's just fascinating stuff, yeah. and it's fun to watch. Yeah, especially the smack talk. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah. and I, I um, that's that's the real future of the sport is to 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 make it entertaining for yeah. for fans. That that's that's the real big challenge that we face, and uh, I think we're on the right path. Well, well next time uh, you got some fellas over and you need a podcast studio, yeah, hit me up and you can use it. Beautiful, love to. Yeah, no right. worries, man. Thank Cheers. you, Ellis. Beautiful. <laughs> We got it. We got it. Holy fucking shit. <laughs> Today is just... Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Sounded a bit Irish then, but... <laughs> Today is... <laughs>